1: Hello, Talent Magnet community. I just wanted to uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode. You are going to hear from one of our faculty, Don Frerichs, who is leading an Extraordinary Leaders series as a part of the Talent Magnet platform. Don is one of our longstanding faculty members. He's an incredible coach, an incredible leader, and he is highlighting extraordinary leaders as a part of this series. So we hope you enjoy. Thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, I turn it over to Don. Thank you for joining the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. This is Don Frerich's guest host
2: for Mike Sippel. And today we are taping the Extraordinary Leader series, the program where we talk to extraordinary leaders about what they did to become great leaders. Today with me is Mark Thompson, Chief Operating Officer at Info Verity in Dublin, Ohio. Info Verity, since 2011, has been a global professional services organization focused on solving business problems caused by the proliferation and diversification of data. And if you think I made that up, you're wrong. It's right off of Mark's website. (laughs) Mark, how are you? I'm doing great, Don. How about you? I'm great. You're going to have to clean that up and let the audience know, what do you guys really do? It sounds very important, but what kind of problems do you actually solve?
0: we're systems integrators around large software platforms for data. And so fundamentally we kind of will work with customers to help them get more value out of their data. And if you can imagine, particularly the global 2000 companies are collecting all kinds of data at a exponentially growing rate. And so most of these firms are drowning in data and we can start at the beginning and help them build a strategy around what what to do with their data, work on data governance, which is kinda, you you remember the old garbage in, garbage out. Well, data governance helps keep clean data coming in and, and not corrupting your own databases with too much. And then we help them master their data What that really means is you get it clear and in control. There's often two primary directions that we're interested in mastering data. The first would be with our customers, and that enables us to connect our customers, communicate with our customers. At the end of the day, the value proposition is it helps increase revenue, right? If we are able to efficiently connect to and engage with our customers. And then the other Kind of generic direction is around product. And that can help drive efficiency and supply chain and delivery and agility in serving up products and developing products. And at the end of the day, business like ours is in business to help another business. You help another business by either helping them increase their revenue or drive down their cost or both. And so data... And you know this, Don. I mean, data is really the new currency in business. And so it's an exciting space. It's a really evolving and growing space. And yeah, I'm having a blast.
2: That's good. Well, I know you were having so much fun when we first met at Aileron in Dayton, Ohio. And that seems like forever ago, but you were there five years and I thought you'd be there forever. So the fact that you came and joined uh, your friend at in infoberity uh, means a lot that this is really a special opportunity to make a difference
0: it is and i was like you i thought i'd be at aileron forever but yeah i, I mean the, the ceo at infoverity is matt Winkie, and matt was a client of mine at aileron that's how we met and he's an extraordinary guy fundamentally what he decided to do was he was the sole owner and he wanted to do a 100% seller financed esop employee stock ownership plan which was Effectively, if you're familiar with ESOPs, it's a way of over time you transfer ownership to the employees and the business has to get more formal in order to do that. So you need a board of directors, you and then with the board of directors, you need a more formal budget and more formal strategic planning and so forth so that uh, you can communicate to those evaluating the business at arm's length because there's a trustee involved, an evaluation firm and so forth. And so he asked me if I would come along and, and help him do this, transfer the company from himself to the employees. And to me, that just sounded super exciting. And it has been. I knew Matt, knew his character, knew his competence. And so we both agreed it would be a failure. If I ever became the CEO, our job is to really kind of build up a leadership team that floats us out when the time is right, and to transfer the ownership in the interim. And so, to me, that that's very exciting.
2: Very exciting. I know you're on the board of Tier One Performance Solutions, another ESOP mm-hmm. company, and you helped Greg Harmeyer uh, make that transition happen. I've always believed I love the ESOP companies because to me, it's where you really do put the needs of the employees first. You're saying like, okay we're not just going to have a couple owners or a single owner. We're all going to be owners. And, and that's a difficult proposition. It's hard to create that and to set it up and to keep it organized and to make it work. It doesn't make life easier, but I believe it's the right thing to do for organizations because it allows a lot more people to think and act and behave like an owner than just a few people.
0: Yeah. I mean, Matt and I tell this story, but I, I was not convinced that ESOPs were the way to go. And, and uh, early on. But then, uh, you know, the more I saw it, particularly for professional services, I think it makes sense. It makes sense in other other applications. So I just got invited onto a board of a small manufacturer and accepted that earlier this week, believe it or not. But, But I think what it does, every business is a people business, no matter what you're doing to create leverage, anybody else can replicate it. They can buy the same machinery, they can buy the same software. And so at the end of the day, it's every business is a people business and the most relevant assets then are your team. And the fact of the matter is most work today is knowledge work, even in a manufacturer, right? Anything that's not knowledge work, we find a way to automate and simplify in most cases. ESOP is really connecting to those knowledge workers and they have a stake in the game. And it's also, I think what is appealing to me even more is, is that there is a development of an owner's mindset that doesn't always happen instantly or naturally. We're kind of groomed and cultivated in, you know, most of us to be employees and To think like an employee and an owner brings sometimes a different perspective. Much more balancing of the long-term has to. Sometimes it's the only way you get yourself through as an owner, right? You Because the short-term isn't looking that great and feeling that great. (laughs) And you're fighting through whatever the challenges are. But that sort of buy-in, I think, is developmental. I have a strong belief even before Aileron, when I was a client avail around before I joined them that privately held businesses do a tremendous amount of good. And they they provide value to their customers, but they also provide a lot of value to those that participate in them, to their staff. And generally it's an owner putting their own capital at risk that you know underpins that business. And I think it's a fabulous process. And not appreciated as broadly as it needs to be because privately held businesses change a lot of lives for the better.
2: They really do. Well, we share that same interest. I know another uh, person that you know, the CEO at uh, Henny Penny, Rob Conley, and I've talked a lot about the challenge. He's got a 700, 800 person organization that's in manufacturing in a small rural town outside of Dayton, Ohio. And I can see a smile like Rob's like, this is the right thing to do, but it's really hard to get that many people to think like owners. And it's not easy. And, and it's still the right thing to do, but this struggle is a good struggle. And that's what I hear you saying.
0: It, it is. I think one of the ways that I've come to frame it is the notion of inviting. So it's inviting others into the ownership perspective versus Don, let me try and push you, this at you. Or times you get, I get enthusiastic about it and I want to push and that does, it just doesn't work very well. So I, the more I think about inviting, I think it, it feels better and goes better.
2: Before you had, were at Aileron, you were at LJB for
0: 24 years. Is that right? I think it was twenty nine, but yeah. 29, <laughs> gracious, you're, yeah. You're letting people you're giving people a sense of my age here, Tom. We gotta <laughs> can we leave these numbers out of it. <laughs> well,
2: and, and the thing is, is that I guess the last four or five you were CEO, and before that you were probably president for like nine or ten years. Mm-hmm. But before that you had a long career, probably on the engineering side. Yeah. We only remember the fact that you were CEO, right? And we think of you know, Mark Thompson, CEO of LJB. But your journey started a long time, even before then. And I'm just curious, because I really don't know much about your family of origin. First of all, could you tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and family and, but the relevancy sure. to where maybe leadership started to show up or how it was role modeled to you or just anything where, I'm always curious about the seeds of leadership. You know, like, where did it show up such that you started to maybe take note of it or you became aware of something that might be relevant?
0: So well, let me talk just briefly about my family and probably some of the leaders that maybe influenced me I'll preface with this like for me the best synonym i can think of for leadership is influence and when trying to think of good le- leadership i'm thinking of constructive influence influence that encourages out the best versions of of others and so yeah, I grew up in Middletown, Ohio, and I was the youngest of four. When I was 11, my father left. He was a functional alcoholic and pretty much left. Kind of in that breaking apart of my family, a lot of things changed. And my mother was, did not have a college education and really didn't have a way to feed us. And so she borrowed money. My went to college in her 40s, and this is the early 70s. You just didn't see what you would call adults on college campuses in the 70s, and so it was an incredibly courageous journey she made. And so she was going to college while I, while I was in junior high, and we were kind of in school together, figuring it out. And she was Scrimping and scraping, doing what she could to support us, fighting through college, and she became a teacher. And then when I was in high school, she was in grad school and teaching full time and teaching night school. And she finally finished up graduate school about the time I finished high school, and <laughs> I went off to college. And she was you know, teaching night school and teaching day school to You know, get enough money. And so, tremendous influence. And (laughs) let me ask you this, Don. Imagine me complaining to her about hard work. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, there's just, there's no way to do that, right? And
2: absolutely. You talk about role models. I
0: think, wow. Yeah. She was a huge influence in that regard. Like, the other thing I would, would say about her is she was an educator even before she became a teacher. And, had a high value for education. And so, you know, she would often say things like, well, any nickel you made, I mean, it was save it for college. And she would say, look, you can lose everything, but you can't lose your education. So her point was really often around, keep educating yourself. It's an investment that you cannot lose and it changes you and usually for the better. So yeah, she was a tremendous influence, very positive influence for sure.
2: As you're talking about Middletown, I can only get the uh, the image of Hillbillyology. I'm sure you're yeah, of course you're nodding. And uh, I listened to that book on tape. It was fantastic. What a story! And I would think that probably his version of Middletown was not your version, but yet it was still around enough to say, "Hey, Middletown was not an easy place to grow up." It wasn't my version. His was rougher
0: than mine, but. You know, his mother, Don, was two years behind me in high school. I didn't know her, and I didn't know that. I read the book, and he gave her birth date, in the book, I thought, oh, my gosh, I must know her. Pulled out an old uh, yearbook, and there she was. So his his family lived about three blocks from my grandparents. The street they lived on parked across from them friend of mine who I played basketball with lived on that street, played basketball in that park. So, yeah, it was very familiar to me. Problems with opiates are very real. My oldest nephew died as a heroin addict. So it's, it's not overblown. It's not over-dramatized. His journey was not mine. Like I said, his was much tougher. But even before Hillbilly Elegy, we, re- we referred to Middletown as Middle Tucky. Because you know, my father came from Eastern Kentucky.
2: Wow, it's interesting. So you've got uh, this DNA of of mom and dad, and, and this great educator that comes through you. And and I think you are one of the most learned, philosophical, deeply studied, deeply read people that I know in the world. And I'm not saying that to stroke you at all. You read more than anybody I know. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today is to talk about, you know, what it means to really be responsible for your own learning and development and how you've gone about that. Because I think you've got things to share with our listeners that is unique because um, you are very, very intentional, I believe, about uh, developing yourself. And you and I even sat down and talked about what we both thought rapid development might be at one point because we're both fascinated in the the topic. But yeah, I don't want to take you off, off track here, but Knowing that your mom was uh, an educator, do you think some of that is within you? Are you also perhaps uh, another version of that educator?
0: I think so. I have a bias to relate that way. Yeah. So that's there's no secret in that in anybody who's hung around me, whether they want me to try and educate them or not. <laughs> I get intrinsic reward from that exchange. I get true reward because generally you know, that old adage, if you want to learn something, teach it, it is very accurate. Like that cliche is a cliche for a reason, because it resonates so true. So in order to share or, you know, exchange knowledge, you really have to be much more clear in your own mind. And so it it sort of drives you to another level of competence, if you're going to share. If I think that Uh, influence and constructive influence is synonymous with leadership. For management, it's teaching. Every workforce, you're looking at highly intelligent, highly autonomous individuals that you're cultivating towards delivering work, towards a vision, ways to do it, a culture. But these start out, we all start out as intelligent, autonomous individuals, So all the dimensions of teaching, whether it be, you know, all the emotional intelligence side or all the intellectual side, both are important, right? But management is largely about transference of, okay, here's the processes we're using now and why they matter, because really intelligent, autonomous people need to understand why most of the time they won't just, they'll comply for a while, trusting that, okay, they haven't steered me wrong so far, but eventually, you know, we need to know why and want to know why. And why adds to context and understanding context is where deep improvements come to play, right? So if you and I know why we're trying to do what we're trying to do, we can follow the current process. But we're also thinking about this, is, this process is kind of clunky. It's not very fun, Don. How can we make it better and faster and Less work, right? That's where big improvements come, and I think a lot of those come deep from the right brain. They're more conceptual. They're more nonlinear There's certainly left brain linear sequential continuous improvements, but big shifts generally bubble up from the right brain and they're synthesized. So I don't even know what question you asked me, Don. I forgot what I was answering. (laughs) We're talking about teaching and it sounds to me like
2: you're saying like leadership is teaching, but so is management. Teaching on the leadership side might be more about the the IQ, EQ and how do we work with people. Process teaching is more on the management side. They're both necessary. I always struggle when we say, let's pull leadership and management apart and compare them because... You know, we want to make leadership look good and management look bad. Like, no, no, no. I always say you can't pull them apart. They, they're totally integrated. To be a good leader, you've got to be a good manager and, and vice versa. And some jobs require more leadership. Some jobs require more yeah. management. You just have to know how to flex and how to utilize both. Back to your point about it's all about influence. So you've got to know how to flex in and out of both sides of that equation, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with what you're saying.
2: You came out of school as an engineer. And you practiced that for a while, but then fell in love with business, or at least I think that's the story you told me, and then realized you needed to learn business, and then fell in love with leadership, and then realized you needed to learn psychology, and then (laughs) fell in love with senior leadership and realized you need to learn strategy. You went through some pretty big, big evolutions in your career. Could you share with the audience about looking back now of your career you know, what each one of those transitions took. I know you like to think about almost like a step process where you had to immediately learn a lot more about this new topic that you were taking on because you had this great desire to evolve into this next thing. But I'm thinking this might be helpful for those that are listening and trying to figure out how they can grow in their career because you did this three or four or five times very intentionally.
0: Yeah. That's interesting, the way you're framing it. I haven't quite thought of it that way, but I would say a lot of it starts with curiosity, which is obvious, but there's an element of being mindful of humility as well, because when I'm not being my most humble, I'm really hard to teach. It's hard for me to learn when I think I know, because I'm not open, when you're curious And trying to be mindful of managing your own ego a little bit and asking it to step aside a little bit and stay curious, stay open. You see more, you're open to more perspectives and learning. And so I think engineering interested me. I was relatively good at math and science in in high school. And there were, my mother's father was an engineer and uh, had a couple uncles that, were in engineering and so I had a sense of it and that's just kind of what you did. I mean that was, you know, that was a good good job and in Middletown. You went to work at ARMCO as an engineer, which is where I co-opt during college. And but I don't know that like I went into engineering basically because I was good at math and science. Civil engineering looked good because I liked being outside. There was no more <laughs> reflection or thought than that. I also knew I'd be employable. So college was not a theoretical exercise for me. I needed to get through as cheaply as possible, and I needed to be employable. There was, those were not options. That was pretty clear. And so it was very pragmatic. I could be employed. And as I got into it, I honestly started out in environmental engineering, found it to be very administrative and not very interesting then moved into structural engineering and ended up getting a master's in structures right after undergrad. And that's what I started practicing in and enjoyed. The challenges were nice, but it was a lot of the work was more solitary than probably fit me. And I didn't know that. So doing calculations all day and marking up drawings and so forth, while it's interesting, intellectually it wasn't always socially stimulating and And of course, right away, like I went to work for a consultant, and I realized that, well, this is a business. So the way we frame the problems we solve, and if we can pick a more efficient problem to solve that gets the job done, this is a business. And what I started to realize is that's actually more interesting to me. And so I went to night school for a short nine years, Don, that's uh, because I'm a slow learner, but... I was working full-time and went to night school to get my MBA, and it had to start with about seven semesters of classes that filled in for the undergraduate business classes that I didn't have, and then on into the core program, and I know I got about halfway through that, and it was a grind. I was building an office, a branch office for LJB and going to night school, and Uh, I used to say to my fellow students, the first 60 hours of my week are spoken for. So I've got to figure out, like, you know, if we're doing a team project, it's got to be efficient. And I, you know, I need to know my part because I don't have time to waste. And I remember I wanted to quit midway through that. My wife wouldn't let me. She said, I've got too much invested in this. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Because it was hard on all of us. Yeah, it was hard on all of us. And, you know... Fortunately, my, when, when my sons came along, I was about midway through and I finished that up when my oldest son was about six. So I wasn't gone too, for too much of that, but that was more interesting to me. So I was building a branch office and studying business at night and practicing as an engineer and a manager during the day. And so learning sales the hard way, learning management, some of it the hard way, and still you know, doing some engineering and managing engineering and then st- studying at night school. And so that was a great experience. It was like a nine-year co-op experience is the way it felt because you're kind of leading two lives and it helped me a lot to develop and understand what I was studying in B school because I was trying to make it work during the day and uh, many times not very successfully, by the way. <laughs>
2: the things you've said yeah. uh, the story probably for the listeners i believe you said you have to feel the need for more something and that there was not just curiosity in your story about wanting to learn something else but i think that that you were driven to acquire that knowledge right there was something that was out there for you to go get to learn you weren't just doing it to get another degree you don't nobody puts in 9 years of hard labor to get another degree on top of the one they already have unless they really want it, right? So I guess the desire factor was a big deal for you.
0: It was, I'm not really thought of it that way, but I think you're spot on. I think our personal values evolve. It's not that we become fundamentally different. I don't, I'm not suggesting that, but we emphasize different personal values at different stages in our journey. And so when we're doing that, when that's happening, what is fulfilling in work can change. So what was once fulfilling over time may not be as fulfilling. Now, for, that's we're all different in that way, but I, I attribute it to some of the evolution in personal values and kind of personal vision and mission. And a lot of it, Don, I see as experiential, meaning the work informs us or the journey informs us. And so... As a young structural engineer, I would take on all the oddball projects that came into the office because it was interesting to me. And I would get bored in the same type of project over and over. And so part of that was responding to intrinsic reward. Part of it was a belief in broadening my foundation, uh, pun intended for a structural engineer to use that analogy. But just also, it was more interesting to me. And learning something new was invigorating. And getting paid to do it, that's even more of a bonus, right? So as I got into business, I really felt like this is probably what I should have studied all along. But I just didn't know. And I wasn't mentored in that direction. And that's okay. But then I, you know, my quip to you about after becoming a CEO and in my earlier statement that Every business is a people business. I realized that it, like the care and, and feeding, you know, psychologically of your team and those that rely on you is a bigger deal than I wanted to give it credit for. It's not talked about a lot in business school, right? We're talking about accounting and discounted cash flows and, and, uh, you know, microeconomics and things like that. And it's very interesting, but the real human side is, to, you know, that's the elephant in the living room, right? It's been described to me that there's always two conversations going on. There's this kind of narrow band of an intellectual conversation, and then moving along on top of it is this great big band of an emotional conversation. (laughs) And most of the time, that emotional conversation is driving everything, but we don't acknowledge it. We talk about and exchange intellectually everything's happening from the emotional base and then we rationalize it intellectually later on, right? So, And I think that's, that's kind of what I was referring to with, with psychology and I think for leaders kind of tuning into that intentionally and reminding yourself of that over and over. For me, it's been, been very important. I do better when I'm more conscious of that and leaning into that. Another way it's been described to me, Don, is if you look at any Senior executive who gets fired, it's almost never for intellectual incapability, right? It's always some gaffe of emotional intelligence or something related to character. So that's kind of the clue as to where all the action is as well. And we can get all the intellect we need, right? We can hire it, we can ask for it, we can search it, we can research it, and it's accessible. It's more accessible. That's not the magic, but most of our education points at the intellectual side of the equation. These
2: are, I hope our listeners are understanding, Mark, you know, where you came from, because I would think that some people would describe you as the classic engineer. I mean, you've got, like you said, you're so good at math and and science, and so it just works for you. So for you to have this epiphany of how important the human side is and emotions, I just want to, and if anybody's listening, that's an engineer please hear Mark Thompson, the engineer, (laughs) has seen the light because he realizes the intangible side, the soft side, as we might refer to it, is really, really important. You are a continuous learner and your story points to you doing that, Mark. For our listeners, what what could you recommend? Is there a mindset? Is there a way of being? I mean, how do we keep ourselves in the game of continually learning? What, What would you recommend to them?
0: from my perspective, it really is as simple as looking to learn from everything and looking to learn unconventionally as well. The best example I can give you for me is my wife and I are empty nesters. Both of our sons are educated. They live in Chicago. They're doing great in their careers. And so it's kind of a funny thing. As a father, i in the past couple of years, i said to my wife, "I'm not, I'm not sure how to be a father for this stage. I, like, I don't know what that means." But then I, I listen to my sons, and I think what great teachers they could be for me. So we, we started this thing where Father's Day is in June, and uh, my birthday is around that time. And they're always saying, like, "What you know? What do you, what do you get for Dad?" Right? And what I ask for is books. And this year, I asked my son for a book for each, each occasion for Father's Day and birthday. And I said, here's the criterion. I want you to give me a book that you've read and really enjoyed and you think I would enjoy or a book that you think would help me grow. So
2: <laughs> That's putting yourself the out there. Wow.
0: <laughs> well, if I could have grounded my oldest son, I would have. Well, I, I would have grounded them both, I think, because the oldest son... The first book he gave me was The Road to Character by David Brooks. And I said, look, I said, help me improve, but The Road to Character, my goodness, like that's almost offensive. And, you know, we had to laugh about it, but turns out it was a great book and I really enjoyed it. And in the way I asked for it was more personal than than I experienced it a little more personally, tried to listen to it more because I knew my son had read it. And he was trying to help me. You see the other books, if you're interested, were The Splendid and The Vials. So one of my mentors years ago told me, Hey Mark, quit reading leadership books. Because they're all they're all so sanitized and you know, kind of academic. The world just doesn't happen that way. And this guy was really wise. And he said, read history and specifically biographies. And you'll see how messy it really is and how complex and human real leaders are. For me, that was tremendous advice. So I've become much more interested in history. I think as we get older, that's a tendency for a lot of folks. But uh, responding to that advice from a mentor was also a, a big deal to me. And so the other books I got from my sons were The Splendid and the Vial, which is about Winston Churchill the first year he was prime minister before the U.S. got into World War II. And it was that one year. And my goodness, what a a character he was, right? And yet he was exactly who Britain needed at that time. You needed someone who could bluff Hitler, who was that crazy and apparently unstable. And yet it was exactly what the U.K. needed. He was. And then My youngest son gave me, the reason I would have grounded him is he gave me a grant, Ron Chernow's grant, which is 959 pages long and I thought I was going to die, but it really was great. Pre-Civil War all the way through Reconstruction, what a journey. And his research was extraordinary. And so I relearned so much that was so messy about Grant and Lincoln and uh, very unlike the way they were sanitized for us for high school history classes, right? And it's fascinating. So you see in Grant, someone who openly struggling with alcoholism and migraine headache and depression, Lincoln, is being treated with mercury while he's the president of the United States, and the beliefs that had he not been assassinated, he, he might not have lived through that second term anyway, and also battled severe depression and you know Churchill and so you see the complexity of real leaders and you yes. see the messiness of real context of the leadership in, into which they were called and how many times they fumble and stumble before getting it right enough and to me that's I would love it if in our current culture we could understand more of that it, we it feels like we've gotten more judgmental and almost an expectation of perfection in whatever leader is being criticized and simply doesn't exist. We're human and we're real messy. So I think history provides some context on that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It is, I would say, a little more challenged than a blog post or what somebody chose to scribble on the Internet and challenged intellectually for veracity. And I think it. It has helped me looking at you know, some of the current turmoil of the past year to feel more calm about it. We've been through cycles like this before, uh, much worse than what we're going through now, by the way.
2: Great perspective. I have always said that leadership to me is such a complex and big topic. It's enormous. It's like an ocean and you can't possibly just dive in to one book and get your arms around it and feel good. It's not about one podcast or workshop and uh, Mark was yeah. part of a, a, an original uh, study that I did with 21 leaders that were thought to be great leaders by the people that they led. Mark, you helped me kind of go through that. But it seemed like most of the people that I talked to talked about this organic process of learning through real life experiences, connecting the dots, looking at some bad leaders that had screwed some things up, as well as some good leaders that led well, and trying to make sense out of how they could use what they're learning from observing these other leaders to become a better leader themselves in their own authentic style, and their own way. And I was always fascinated that that process uh, seemed to take quite a bit of time because it was through observation and it was through real life experiences. And so one of the things I said to Mark a while ago, you know, and I feel like uh, many of our younger listeners might be looking to speed up their learning as leaders. And so, you know, I think one of the ways we could maybe try to bring some relevancy to our younger listeners. Is like, if you were to do it over today, Mark, what would you do intentionally to learn traits of extraordinary leadership? How would you go about it? Is there anything looking back over your career you might do more of or less of or focus more
0: on? Yeah. I couldn't hold myself out as an expert on how to do it better. What is front of mind for me and you framed it as what what would you share with someone younger? Often, I'll hear a question that is framed, should I be a specialist or a generalist? And it's never asked that bluntly, but that's kind of the gist of what's being asked is, should I be a specialist or a generalist? And my answer is always yes. You need to be both. And the reason I say that is, If leadership is largely about influence and management is largely about teaching or transference of knowledge, you have to be enough of a specialist to garner the credibility to influence and to transfer knowledge, right? And yet, I don't know who the philosopher was, but it might have been Emerson. He he who only knows Rome knows little of Rome. And so if we only know a narrow band, we don't have much context. And so we don't even know that band very well because we can't compare it or synthesize from it very ably. We're too narrow, if you will. So that's where the broad learning comes from. Broad learning, in my mind, I, I have a belief and there's no... This is um, This is a world according to Marx, so take it with a grain of thought, but... <laughs> My belief is that most innovation comes by stepping between two thought spaces and stepping between them and bridging two thought spaces or or blending them together or solving a problem for each, making some sort of connection there. But it's stepping into some sort of vacancy and filling it. And that's where a lot of innovation comes from. And generally... Good innovation, we'll look at after the fact and say, "That's so simple. Why didn't I see that?" And, and when someone explains us, explains it to us, so I don't know if that answers your question about leadership. It's how I think about innovation and learning. And so, I think I told you in one of our prior conversations that I probably, I have a belief that the notion of the Renaissance person was accurate. And that notion kind of informed the classic liberal arts approach to higher education, which I think is accurate. I think it's a, it's a good approach so that you learn in many areas and then decide where in liberal arts, then decide where to go for your master's and, and focus or, or to go deeper. And you can't yield to either, to either extreme too much. So if if it's only broad, then I'm a mile wide and an inch deep. Right. And it, if, you know, it's the old saying if it's only narrow, then over time I learn more and more about less and less until I know everything about nothing. And, you know, the opposite's true. I know nothing about everything. So it's some tension between those. I think curiosity and interest and listening to your own what values you're trying to exercise through the work keeps you really engaged. So that's how I try and think about it. Those are the things that come to
2: mind. I think you told me uh, when I asked originally that you had had maybe or had some experience with a coach and obviously played that role for others at Aileron, that type of thing. I have a bias towards coaching helps us think better because it helps us make sense out of our experiences. But I think you were pretty clear with me saying, but that wasn't the only way that I learned leadership. It was helpful to a certain degree. But you know, it's really the whole body of work. Uh, it's paying attention to everything that's happening to you and your job, your career, your working relationships with your boss, with your peers, with your direct reports. Again, back to the complexity, leadership has a lot of different influence points. And so for us to reduce it to just one type of relationship, you and your direct reports, that really doesn't bode well because the leader has to lead in a lot of different circumstances to be successful.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. As you were reminding me of some of that conversation, I have a value for simplifying. And to simplify, you generally have to synthesize and synthesize and integrate. And I think that we look for that from leaders. So we look for leaders to simplify and create some order out of chaos. And we'll allow ourselves to be influenced by those who do that can kind of show us where they're headed and which is transparency. It's easier to trust, it's easier to believe in situationally. And that process is probably back more to the engineer in me of simplifying and synthesizing and integrating. It's that, Don, and I'm lazy, because generally, if you simplify, it, it gets easier to do, and the, the work becomes easier, and you can move on to something more rewarding. <laughs> so. I love it. Yeah, I'm wired the same
2: exact way. Well, to try to bring order out of chaos, I've been taking notes, and for our listeners, let me just try to hit some of the highlights where Mark has taught me again today what it means to be a leader, because this is a big topic. And so to simplify, Mark, help me out, make sure I get this right. First of all, we talked about the, the power of the invitation and that in ESOPs and, and all really business environments, good leaders learn how to make an invitation. They don't always push to get people to do things. I get bothered by the competency called drive for results because it sounds like all I do is drive people to get results. What I heard you say is like, it's more about the invitation today that seems to resonate with people. And that tied into your second topic around leadership influence. And it's about influence today. And, we try to encourage the people and bring out the best version of them. We also talked about the, the power of teaching, your mom being an, an educator and, and you having some of that educator in, in you. And I love what your mom said. You can lose everything, but you cannot lose the education that you got. And you said, if you want to learn something, you, you teach it. And I, I think that's exactly right. The best way to learn something, if you're trying to learn leadership, start to teach it to other people. Be the great role model of an effective leader. We talked about curiosity. I love what you did with the topic. You didn't just leave it at curiosity, you added humility to it. So the combination of curiosity and humility allows people to know what they don't know and then to go out and really learn what they need to learn. You spent nine years getting a business degree and your MBA uh, in the evenings when you're working a lot of hours. You had to remain curious or else you would have never completed that mission. And that was a a huge journey. You talked about the evolution of personal values. I wonder how many of our listeners really even know what their personal values are. You know, is there clarity about what matters most to you today? Because you said at times in your life, one value may become more important than another value. Sounds to me like your self awareness, you didn't call it that, but I'll call it that, was really, really high because you needed to identify with what values are important to you at this time, not that they're all equally important at all times but you paid particular attention to different values throughout uh, your career. I love the the combination of intellectual and emotional conversations, and that sometimes the emotion doesn't really get talked about, but that's what's dominating how people receive the information and how much they feel communicated with. How many times have you heard that we need to communicate better as an organization?
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) You mean today? How many times today have I heard that? (laughs) Today,
2: right. I mean, is it the number one thing on all engagement surveys or what? So, you know, maybe part of it is, like you said, is like we just need to have leaders tune into the emotional side of the conversation and clarify that and make sure that we get really, really clear with people about that. And then two last points. Uh, You can learn from everything you said. Learn unconventionally. You gave the great example of you can learn leadership through history and that you looked at some of these great leaders that your sons gave us, gave you books on, and that helped you kind of look at leadership as an imperfect act, And but there's still uh, ways that imperfect leaders can have a major impact on our world and our future. And then lastly, specialist or generalist is a trick question. It's both, you can learn broadly, you can learn deeply at the same time, and that if you pay attention, you'll maybe find innovation in between those places where there's two thought spaces and there's a little bit of a void in between and that's where maybe something great can happen. And I would just add, I think that's where great leadership shows up is that the noticing of where there's opportunity, where can I add value as a a leader to my team, to my organization, uh, to my leadership team and that great leaders are also great innovators because they're continually thinking about how do they add value to the organization? What did I
0: miss? Well, what you missed is what you just demonstrated, and that is, I think good leaders are really good listeners. Mm. You just demonstrated really good listening, like I didn't realize I said all that, and as you played it back, you listened very intently, and I think that's also really critical to learning, right? Yeah. Starts with listening.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I think it does, and I just want to say thanks to our, our listeners. Uh, Mark and I have had a great time. We hope you have too. And if you have questions or if you want to comment, you can do so by going to the Talent Magnet Institute's podcast mm-hmm. website and you can actually leave a verbal question and we'll respond. Or if you want to type something in, we'd be, we'd be honored to get that question to try to clarify. Uh, this has been enjoyable for us. And again, we say thank you for listening in today. Thanks to the Talent Magnet Institute podcast family. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review.
1: The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet Eye on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio, we are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Sound Press, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr.